0: Welcome to Part 10 of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's podcast presentation of Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, where Nate helps Jennifer expose a fraudulent psychic leading to yet another change of offices, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share it really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 30 Nate aimed his gun at the target at the far end of the range. He squeezed off six shots in quick succession, then set the gun down and pressed the button that caused the paper silhouette to fly toward him on its track. The sight of the dark shape floating in his direction caused his mind to flash back for the second time that day to the dream he had coming out of anesthesia. Only he was the silhouette, floating back to rejoin his body in the operating room. "'Geez, were you even aiming at it?' Max asked. Nate took off his ear protectors and set them on a counter next to the gun. "'I used to be able to get a good grouping with my left hand. Just need more practice.' Max pulled the target down and poked a finger through a hole in the upper right corner. Well, if this was a bad guy, he certainly would have heard it whizzing past. Very funny. Did you get that file for me? Which one? The uh, one where I had to violate procedure to secure a police file for a civilian? Oh, all of a sudden you're Mr. By-the-Book, Nate asked. All of a sudden you're not? Max asked back. It's a favor for a friend, Nate explained. Max regarded Nate suspiciously. "'A blonde friend with the letters P, H, and D after her name?' Max teased. Nate changed the subject. "'How's the case going?' "'As a matter of fact, we got a tip on the robbers. Someone saw a couple of guys matching their description hiding out in the tenderloin. The crime scene guys found some unburnt items in the fireplace. They're trying to get prints from the scene. "'Could be from the robbery.' "'That's good,' Nate replied. Max smiled to himself, realizing, "'Of course, you already knew that. You phoned in the tip.' Nate's sheepish expression was his admission. I just did a little legwork on my own. Didn't want to make it complicated, he explained. A little legwork? How in the world did you track those guys down to a house in the loin? We've had the entire force working on getting a lead for weeks. And you just happened to stumble across their hideout? What am I missing here? Did you get that file for me or not? I got it, Max confirmed. He fished out a thumb drive from his pocket. I know you like paper, but us new kids don't like carrying around big folders. Feel free to print it out yourself, though. Nate accepted the thumb drive and shoved it into his pocket. Thanks. I owe you one. Great. I'll collect right now. How did you find that hideout? Nate didn't respond. Come on, Nate. If you're holding out on me, you could be putting the investigation at risk. You know that. How can we find the guys who almost killed you if you keep information from me? It's not important how I found out. It has nothing to do with the case. Max raised an eyebrow. Really? You know, if the situation was reversed, you would say something like, I'll be the judge of that. You really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. I put the wrong address in for my Uber ride. It dropped me off in front of the hideout. It looked familiar, so I checked it out. What do you mean, looked familiar? I don't know. I can't explain it. It was a hunch. Max stared at his old partner. A hunch? Yeah. Hunches are just educated guesses based on experience and... I know what a hunch is, but this was a hell of a hunch. Based on a random incorrect address? Nate nodded. Max crossed his arms and looked into Nate's eyes. Nate looked away. There's something you're not telling me. Nate remained silent. Nate, it's me, Max. I trust you with my life. You're the best detective I know. If you colored outside the lines a little, I'm not going to hold it against you. Nate shut his eyes and squeezed his temples between the thumb and middle finger of his good hand. The image from his dream appeared behind his eyelids. The house with the car in the driveway. The two men inside the dilapidated house. He dropped his hand and looked back into Max's demanding eyes. He knew Max was right, that knowing the source of the information was critical to the investigation. But he couldn't rationally explain how he knew that that house was connected to the robbers. None of it made sense. "'Hypothetically,' Nate began, "'If I was to tell you that I saw it in a dream, what would you make of that?' "'Hypothetically?' Max asked. I'd first ask if you were crazy, then maybe if you were psychic. Hypothetically, the answer to both questions is no. Hypothetically, I would probably have to assume there was some kind of explanation, Max said. Maybe you've come across these guys before, and you knew there was a connection between them and that address. Nate shook his head. I thought of that. I've never worked a case in that neighborhood. Max was out of ideas. Okay, so is there any other information you have that can help us? No. Nate answered without conviction. But if there was, you'd tell me. Of course, he replied embarrassedly. Nate looked down the range. Says spill, Max coaxed. They might be driving a Cadillac, a cream-colored Seville, maybe a 2000. Same dream? Hypothetically, Max considered. Okay, partner, we'll leave it at that. He eyed the target again. You better move in here if you're going to get certified shooting lefty. I'll be fine. The doc says all I need is time to let it heal, and I'll be 100% again. A hundred percent? I always had you pegged at around 70, 75, Max joked. Nate smiled. We'll see. I'll be kicking your ass up and down this range before long. Why wait? Max placed a box of ammunition on the counter. He set up a new target and sent it down the lane. Then he pulled out his sidearm and switched it to his left hand. Batter up! Chapter 31 Jennifer drove her van up the long driveway to the Worthington Estate. She wore a version of her usual wardrobe, a white turtleneck sweater and black slacks, with a matching jacket. But she had swapped the vans for a classy pair of flats. The ever-present sign necklace hung about her neck. Nate sat in the passenger seat fighting a yawn. He had managed to wriggle into his tuxedo on his own, but needed Jennifer to help him with the bow tie. She had assured him the invitation was solely because he was the only person she knew who would appreciate it. A gourmet meal to Dave or Emily would be the Cheesecake Factory. She assured Nate that she wouldn't use it as an opportunity to probe him about the shooting. Though, if it earned her a couple goodwill points toward him keeping an open mind about Diane, she'd take it. Nate yawned again. Not sleeping? Jennifer asked. Is it the shoulder or the dog? Both, Nate answered. He wasn't about to tell her about his Uber adventure that led him to discover the robber's abandoned hideout and the strange dream that made him reluctant to want to sleep. I'm going to have to weld that kennel shut. Or you could just let her sleep in your room. Get a doggy bed. She's temporary. I'm just doing a favor for a friend of my mother. Jennifer smiled. That's a shame. She's a sweet dog. You two make a cute couple. Nate smirked his reply. As they drew closer to the main house, they came upon a circular driveway. A pair of valets rushed up to the van and opened the doors for them. Jennifer and Nate stepped out onto the walkway that led to the front door of the mansion. They paused to take it in. Wow, Jennifer said. Imagine all the history in that place. Imagine the tax bill, Nate countered. I thought you would be more excited. I am, Nate assured her. Thank you for inviting me. He was genuinely grateful. The opportunity to enjoy a meal the caliber of which Worthington's chef would provide was a rare one for someone like him. He was a pretty good cook himself, but some people are artists. And he was guessing the meal he was about to have would cost hundreds of dollars, and that would be before the wine. His medication was still an obstacle to enjoying whatever vintages would be presented, but maybe he would take a sip here and there. Certainly that would be okay. He walked up the steps to the stately home. A butler was there to hold the door open for them. The foyer was like something from a Hollywood set. There was a large spiral staircase, marble floors, and a vaulted ceiling. Aperitifs and a mousse bouche are being served in the library, the butler announced, and pointed in the direction of a large arched doorway. Jennifer and Nate headed in the direction of the promised appetizers, the scents of which were already teasing their noses. It seemed they were the first to arrive, or maybe the other guests were somewhere else. Regardless, a table was set with various bites set on ornate plates. A waiter appeared with a tray of glasses. There were two choices, one that had a slice of orange on the edge, the other with a sprig of mint. "'Could I get a sparkling water with a splash of lime?' Nate asked the waiter." The white-gloved man nodded, set the tray down alongside the food, and disappeared through a cleverly hidden door. Jennifer tasted one of the hors d'oeuvres, and a look of utter joy crossed her face. You have to try these. They're amazing, she said with her mouth still full. Nate smiled at her reaction. He approached the plate with a small breaded ball, swiped it through an artful smear of sauce, and popped it into his mouth. The sauce provided an initial tangy, acidic taste, but once he bit into it, a savory wave washed over his tongue. Sweetbreads, if he had to guess, seasoned to perfection with the breading providing a perfect contrasting texture. "'Dr. Day, I see you actually did bring a date,' a voice said from behind them. "'I'm not her date,' Nate said reflexively. Jennifer gave the dean a cool stare. "'Hello, Robert. This is Detective Nate Rainey,' she added, taking a step closer to Nate. "'A police detective?' the dean asked. "'Currently inactive,' Nate explained, lifting his sling. "'You seem surprised,' Jennifer added." I didn't know the police were big supporters of anthropology, the dean said. Nate smiled. From your lack of imagination, I guess you must be an administrator, he said matter-of-factly. Jennifer unsuccessfully tried to stifle a laugh. I am the dean of Dr. Day's department, he replied. Ah, the one who's been playing musical offices. Interesting. What's interesting? How the stereotype of an academically deficient pedagogue who turns to a career as a power-driven administrator can be so accurate... Jennifer covered her mouth to hide her amused smile. The dean hemmed and hawed. I'm sorry Dr. Day's arm-twisting took you out of commission. The force must miss your Holmesian logic. Nate didn't reply, so Jennifer answered for him. Detective Rainey was injured when he threw himself in front of a bullet meant for a young couple. The dean was caught off guard by the revelation. Excuse me, I think the other guests are arriving. Nice to meet you, detective, he said, then quickly scurried away to say hello to a couple entering the library. Thank you. Jennifer said to Nate. I rarely see Robert knocked back on his heels like that. Don't mention it. I deal with people like that from City Hall all the time. They hate when you hold a mirror up to them. Maybe they're vampires, Jennifer suggested. The room filled up with about a dozen other people, some of whom Jennifer knew. She made introductions and some of them were familiar with Nate's story, but all of them were very interested in the famous Dr. Day. Those who were close confidants of Worthington mentioned that he was very excited to have her here. What do you think the dean signed you up for? Nate asked. I thought I was here to sign a book or two, get an extra zero on his donation, but now I suspect there's something else at play. A door at the far end of the library opened, and Daniel Worthington made his entrance. He scanned the faces of the guests, and when he spotted Jennifer, he walked straight toward her. Behind him was a much shorter man, dressed in a jacket that looked like it was made from a carpet. His hair was tucked up into a ridiculous-looking man bun. He wore a shirt buttoned all the way to the neck but no tie. Instead, there was a collection of chains, some gold, some silver, some adorned with various gems. A goatee framed the thin lips of his mouth, and he seemed to be wearing mascara, giving him a somewhat goth look that reminded Nate of Emily from Jennifer's office. He also reminded Nate of someone else, who he couldn't quite recall, but something about him was familiar. Where had he met him before? Professor Day, I'm so glad you could make it, Wellington said to Jennifer as soon as he reached her. He extended his hand and Jennifer shook it. My wife will be so excited to meet you, he said. Your wife? I thought I read that she had passed away recently, Jennifer said. Then she noticed the man standing behind Worthington, a man she recognized also. Yes, she did, Worthington replied with a sly smile. May I introduce my dear friend, Meyer Krasinski? He, too, is a student of the paranormal, the old man informed them. Suddenly, Nate remembered where he had seen the small, oddly adorned man before. He was one of the psychics his mother had visited, one he had confronted personally, the very conflict that had created a year-long rift between himself and his mother. Krasinski smiled and bowed slightly to Jennifer, then Nate. If the man recognized Nate, he didn't betray it. Jennifer, it's nice to see you again. Meyer? Jennifer replied simply. Nate noticed that the tone of her voice was not friendly. Oh, you know each other? Worthington asked. Our paths have crossed, Jennifer replied. I had no idea Miss Day was going to be here, Daniel, Krasinski said to his host. I wanted to surprise you. I know if Dr. Day endorses your work, you'll get the attention you so richly deserve. Krasinski smiled. Thank you, Daniel. That's very generous of you. Wellington grinned proudly. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must say hello to the rest of my guests before we get started. He walked away and Krasinski followed like a loyal puppy. You know that guy? Nate asked Jennifer. Oh, yes, she admitted, watching him inflict his Californian swami act on Worthington's guests. I debucked a seance he connected a few years ago. It was a cheap magic show. My client wasn't happy to find out he had been taken. Meyer's the kind of con artist that turns my stomach. When I met him, his name was Murray. Jennifer turned to Nate. He took my mother for nearly ten grand, Nate said. I'm sorry, Jennifer said. Despite the ridiculous getup, he can be very charming and persuasive. "'Any chance he's anything but a complete fraud?' Nate asked. Jennifer shook her head. "'And your dean wants you here to please Worthington.' She nodded. "'Sounds like a classic rock and a hard place you got yourself caught between,' Nate said. "'Now I remember why I invited you. I needed someone to remind me of the obvious.' "'Glad I could help. Just try not to blow everything up before the soup course.' The clink of a silver spoon against the side of a crystal wine glass silenced the conversations taking place in the library. "'Everyone, may I have your attention?' Worthington announced from the center of the room. "'Before we sit down to the wonderful meal our chef has planned for us, I'd like all of you to participate with me in an attempt to make contact with my dear wife, Hazel.' He waved an arm toward an enormous portrait high on one wall of an older woman, a lively smile on her face. "'Maybe you better fill up on the appetizers,' Jennifer advised Nate. Nate scanned the room. "'If there was going to be some sort of show put on by Krasinski, he likely would need Confederates.' All the guests were transfixed by Worthington and his psychic sidekick. The only other people in the room were the waiters, who were circulating the appetizers, except for one. He wore the same tuxedo-like uniform and white gloves, but he didn't carry anything, nor did he seem interested in Worthington and Krasinski. Jennifer sidled up close to Nate so she could whisper discreetly in his ear. Now it makes sense to get everyone gathered in the library. I'm guessing Meyer has had time to hide a few gadgets, maybe a projector among all the books and art. He's probably working with someone. Nate subtly nodded toward the suspicious character he had identified. Check out that waiter over by the door. Jennifer looked in that direction, but not directly at him. Yep, I know him too. Damn it, here I am trying to get you to open your mind to the paranormal, and I'll lead you directly into a nest of phonies. On the bright side, at least I have some evidence that you actually agree there are frauds and scammers. You're also going to have evidence that I'm completely willing to screw up my academic career in order to call them out. No wonder Worthington wanted me here. He wants validation that whatever Meyer has been feeding him is real. Won't Krasinski know you're trying to call him out? He seemed surprised that I was here, but after our last run-in, I have to assume he's upped his game. And with Worthington's money behind him, I suspect he's not playing with invisible threads and Bluetooth speakers anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, Krasinski began, if you can put aside your plates and glasses for a moment, I'd like all of you to form a circle and join hands. The waiters, except for Krasinski's man, collected the plates and glasses from the guests, and they formed a circle extending from Worthington and Krasinski around the center of the library. Conveniently, the pattern of the large rug on the floor was a circle that served as a guide. Jennifer placed her left hand on Nate's right shoulder and held hands with the person on her right. He obviously wasn't buying the whole seance thing, but his glare conveyed a warning that if Jennifer wanted to keep her nice offices, she should play along until Worthington's check cleared. Nate reluctantly accepted the hand of the woman to his left, all the while keeping an eye on Krasinski's stooge. Everyone, please close your eyes, Krasinski said in a commanding yet ethereal voice. Nate left his open. The fake waiter walked over to the light switches for the rooms and turned them all off, plunging the room into darkness. Then he closed the doors, blocking out any remaining light. The sudden shift from a brightly lit room to near pitch black left a faint afterimage in Nate's vision. He lost track of Krasinski's helper. Krasinski continued. I want all of you to fill yourselves with love, openness. "'Make yourselves welcome to accepting the presence of our dear friend. "'Those of you who knew Hazel, think of your happiest memory with her. "'Give her smile, those beautiful, friendly eyes.' "'Nate detected a faint ozone smell. "'Then he could feel the hairs on the back of his neck and hands standing up. "'Somehow Krasinski was filling the room with an electric charge. "'Jennifer lifted her hand from his shoulder and reached for his ear. "'A spark jumped from her fingertip to his earlobe. "'Ow,' Nate exclaimed in a whisper. The woman to his left shushed him. Krasinski chuckled as if he had heard a funny story. Is someone thinking about the time Hazel dressed up as her husband for Halloween? A woman gasped. He's got them, Jennifer whispered to Nate. Anything they see or hear from this point on they'll believe is Mrs. Worthington. Although Jennifer probably couldn't see him in the dark, he nodded his agreement. It only took a sliver of confirmation to reinforce people's biases. And of course, by now everyone was feeling the effect of the electrical charge leaking into the room attributing it, no doubt, to the presence of spirits. He took the hand of the woman to his left, stepped back, and laid her top the hand Jennifer had placed on his shoulder. Cover for me, he whispered to her. Okay, Jennifer whispered back. The woman shushed them both. Nate stepped back, trying to remember the layout of the library as his eyes slowly adjusted to the tiny amount of light leaking in under the doors. At least he knew where the doors were. He could orient himself on that thin, white crack in the black. He continued moving backwards until his feet found the edge of the rug. Then he traced the edge, remembering that it was clear furniture. All the guests were locked in a circle in the middle of the rug, so he probably wouldn't bump into any of them. Then his foot passed over a lump under the rug. He slowly and quietly kneeled down and reached out with his left hand to find out what it was. He found a cord snaking under the rug. It appeared to be taped down to the exposed wooden floor, likely with tape the same color of the wood to help it escape notice. He assumed it was the source of the electrical charge. Krasinski continued his act, asking if anyone had questions for Hazel. After a hesitant pause, one of the guests volunteered a query, and Krasinski made a big production of trying to pull the answer out of a psychic onslaught of images and words that were assaulting his sixth sense, getting the questioners to answer the very questions they were asking. Nate ignored the communion with the spirits and continued making his way toward the door. As he got closer, his eyes further adjusted, he could see that the dim slit under the door was throwing up a slight reflection from the polished floor. It was clear that the man who had switched off the lights was no longer standing there. He reached out in the darkness. Nate found the panel where the switches were located. He was about to turn the lights on when he heard a noise, an eerie tone that sounded like a woman's voice holding a high, soft note. Hazel, Wellington shouted from his position in the circle. I hear you, my darling. I hear you. There were murmurs and gasps among the guests. Nate almost switched the lights back on at that point, but a part of him wanted to see the show Krasinski had prepared for them. His patience was rewarded by a very dim blue light that appeared to hang in the air above the circle of Worthington and his guests. Oh, Hazel, please speak to me, Worthington begged. Nate knew the old man wouldn't get an answer in words. That would be too easy to screw up. Instead, as if in response, the blue light appeared to travel across the room. It was clear at this point that Krasinski had orchestrated a cloud of vapor upon which his confederate was shining a diffuse blue light. Nate couldn't make out the source, though, wondering where they might have concealed it, or by what means they were orchestrating the show. A gust of wind had sent the cloud across the room, making it appear as if it was an ethereal body floating across the library. The light settled upon the portrait of Hazel Worthington, dimly lighting her face. There appeared to be a thin layer of smoke or fog clinging to the surface of the painting. The face appeared to lift off of the canvas, shimmering in the haze. Oh my, her eyes are closed, one of the guests observed. The others reacted with a mixture of awe and a little fear. Nate looked up, and sure enough, the eyes of the face dancing on the wisps of smoke had its eyes closed. It was an effect he recognized from a trip to Disneyland his mother had taken him on when he was a boy. For a suggestive mind, it was quite convincing. The singing stopped. The eyes of Hazel Worthington's spirit sprung open. A woman screamed and Nate could hear sounds consistent with someone fainting and falling to the floor. He switched the lights on. Everyone covered their eyes. Krasinski was still in his place, clutching Daniel Worthington's hand. Nate scanned the room for Krasinski's accomplice. He heard a moan from above and looked up. He was perched atop a ladder used to reach the books on the upper shelves. He wore night-vision goggles and, turning on the lights, had temporarily blinded him. On the shelf behind him was a gap in the books where a tiny projector was mounted, aimed at the portrait of Hazel Worthington. Daniel Worthington angrily cast his eyes toward Nate. What is the meaning of this? Why did you disrupt the connection? She was going to speak to me. I know she was. Jennifer stepped forward into the center of the circle of guests that was now looking more like an amoeba on the verge of dividing. Mr. Worthington, I'm afraid you've been deceived. What you just witnessed was not the spirit of your wife. It was a show put on by Mr. Krasinski and his associate. She pointed up to the spot where the accomplice had been perched but the gap in the books was now covered up and the man had slid quickly and quietly back to the floor. This is outrageous, Krasinski exclaimed. He turned to Worthington. Daniel, I didn't want to say anything before, but this woman and I have a history. I was hoping she wouldn't try to disrupt the proceedings, but her professional jealousy, I'm afraid, has gotten the better of her. But Hazel was such an admirer of Professor Day. I can't believe she would... Worthington's protest was cut off by a gasp from Krasinski as he suddenly sucked in a lungful of air grabbed both of Daniel's hands, and threw his head back with his eyes closed. "'Meyer, are you okay?' Wellington asked in concern. "'Oh, brother,' Nate said, just loud enough for some guests near him to hear. The dean entered the circle and stepped toward Jennifer. "'What are you doing?' he asked her in a hushed voice. "'You're here to butter the old man up, not upset him.' Krasinski's head tilted forward. His eyes opened just enough to reveal the whites. Nate knew the trick of hooding your eyelids while looking up as far as you could." Sometimes perps he had taken into custody used it to fake a seizure. Worthington gasped. "'She's a fraud, Daniel,' Krasinski said and what Nate assumed was his attempt at a female voice. "'She—oh, Daniel, I'm going. I love you. I love you, too, Hazel,' Worthington said into Krasinski's blank eyes. The psychic's eyes closed, his head fell forward, and his knees buckled. Worthington caught him. "'Help me get him over to that chair.' he said to one of the men nearby. They dragged his limp body over to the chair and gently sat him down. Jennifer watched him closely. One eye opened a crack, looking directly at her, and his lips betrayed a slight smile. The dean rushed up to Worthington. Daniel, I'm so sorry. I had no idea Dr. Day would be so rude. Please, let me apologize on her behalf, and on behalf of the university. I'm sure Hazel would still want you to make sure your legacy at the school remains in place. Worthington looked at Krasinski. The man looked around as if listening to some faint, faraway voice. He looked at Worthington and shook his head. Worthington stood up straight and addressed the dean. I'm afraid I'm going to have to reconsider our arrangement, he declared. He turned his attention to Jennifer. Professor Day, I must ask that you and your guest please leave. Mr. Worthington, Jennifer said, walking toward him. I'm sorry if I upset you, but I cannot in good conscience allow Mr. Krasinski to take advantage of you in this way. I can show you how he did everything you felt and heard and saw, but it wasn't your wife. If you really want to try and make contact, there are some psychics I trust who can... Krasinski cut her off. I know it. She's after your money, Daniel. Nothing but a con artist. Worthington nodded his agreement. Nate couldn't believe what he was seeing. Mr. Worthington, she's right, at least about Murray faking the whole thing. He pointed at the ladder. I saw his accomplice up there. They have equipment hidden behind the books. I would guess there's a fog generator in the vent in the ceiling, and another behind the frame of your wife's portrait. And there's a cord leading under the rug that... Enough. Please, both of you, just leave. I've known Mr. Krasinski for months. He has never been anything but truthful to me. Nate sighed. It was his mother all over again. He knew there was nothing he could say to convince Worthington. Even if he revealed the hidden projector and the other equipment, he was not going to let go of that connection to his wife, no matter how phony it was. I'm sorry, Mr. Worthington. We'll go, Jennifer said as she walked across the room toward Nate. She turned back to the old man. I hope you really do find what you're looking for. Thank you for the invitation. She took Nate by the arm. Come on, there's nothing more we can do. Nate nodded. Do you think he'd be willing to give us a couple of plates to go? Jennifer laughed at the notion. She pulled her rumpled bag of candy corn from her jacket pocket and offered some to Nate. You brought dime store candy to a gourmet dinner? Jennifer nodded and helped herself to a couple of the colorful kernels. Nate reached in the bag, pulled one out, and popped it in his mouth. Chapter 32 Jennifer sat at her desk, perfectly still, her hands resting on its glossy surface. The computer was off, but she stared at its dark screen, wondering when the dean's hammer would come crashing down on her once again. Emily entered and plopped herself in one of the chairs in front of Jennifer's desk. So... Did you and the detective have a good time last night? She asked. (laughs) Ha ha, Jennifer answered. Emily smiled. Come on. It must have been awesome to see that Worthington guy tell the dean he wasn't getting the money. That money is what was supposed to pay for these offices. So we go back to the basement. Big deal. This place smells too new. Jennifer leaned back and sighed. Things were going my way for a minute. Then I had to screw everything up. I thought it was Detective Rainey who broke up the seance. I could have stopped him but I wanted him to do it. I couldn't stand the idea of having my name associated with that crackpot Krasinski. How long do you think we have before they move us out? Emily asked. I'm sure we'll get to the end of the month, Jennifer replied. There was no reason to kick us out before then. Dave popped his head in. Dr. Day, there are some guys outside who say they're here to move us, he announced questioningly. Jennifer and Emily exchanged a look, then laughed. Dave was confused. Is this another joke I'm not a part of? No, Jennifer sighed. The joke's on me this time. I thought I had finally gotten out from under the dean's prejudices, but it's back to the bottom of the totem pole. Oh, Dave said with the implicit message, what else is new? He consulted the sheet of paper in his hand. Well, at least we're not going back to the basement. I don't recognize the address on this moving order, but I think it's on the other side of campus. He stepped into the room and placed the paper in front of Jennifer. She looked it over. I guess we'll find out where they're sticking out soon enough. Sorry, guys. What are you sorry for? The dean is the asshole, Emily commented. He certainly is. World class, Nate added. Jennifer, Dave, and Emily looked over at the police detective who was suddenly standing next to Dave, his free arm gripping a large envelope. He wore a necktie and a suit jacket that covered his sling with the right sleeve hanging limply. Obviously, he was regaining some mobility from the injured arm. Hi, Nate. We were just absorbing the fallout from last night, Jennifer sighed. What are you doing here? You're a little early for the stakeout. It's not until Saturday. Well, I didn't want to bring this up last night. You seem to have enough to deal with. That's an understatement, Emily commented. Nate continued. We might not need to go through all that nonsense, Nate said. He stepped over to the desk and dropped the packet in front of Jennifer. What's this? She asked, as she removed a sheaf of papers from the gray envelope. Your ghost. Jennifer looked at Nate, then back at the papers in her hands. She flipped through the first few pages of the sizable stack, Jerry Henderson, the boyfriend? Ex-boyfriend, Emily added. The ex-boyfriend with a police record, arrests for domestic violence, and a little B&E. So you think this explains everything that happened to Diane? Jennifer asked. It fits. Couple his record with her stress at work and case solved. You're good, Emily said sarcastically. You got the location of Jimmy Hoffa's body in that envelope, too? I thought you wanted to get my cop's perspective on this case. Are you afraid I'm right? He asked. Ooh, Emily said in her millennial monotone. Looks like he's calling you out, Dr. Day. What are we supposed to do with this information? Talk to him, Nate suggested. Once people know you're onto them, they tend to make mistakes. When he does, we'll know we have our man. Right now? Jennifer asked. Do you have anything better to do? A couple of burly movers pushed their way into the office past Dave. Excuse us, one of them said as he walked up to the large poster of Houdini and lifted it off its mount. No, I don't, Jennifer answered. And it looks like I'm just in the way here, she added. She stood up, put the papers back in the envelope, and grabbed her bag and coat. Should we wait out for you? Emily asked, deadpan. I'll check out the new offices later. Make sure they don't damage my posters, she said. Come on, Nate. Let's go ghost bust this guy. Thank you for listening to Part 10 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosick. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.